Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis. So I get to say that again. If you're just joining us, we worked through Genesis chapters 1 through 11 back in the spring. We took a little break over the summer. And now we're going to do part two of Genesis. So we're, we're just doing chapters basically 12 to 25, mainly zooming in on the life of Abraham. And so we're calling the series The Faith of Abraham. So chapter, turn to Genesis chapter 11, actually we're going to start there at the very end, 1127. We're going to pick up the storyline in Genesis starting in 11.27. Hear the word of the Lord. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oaks of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, as many of you know, after college, I spent two years serving in college ministry over in Europe. And over those two years, the Lord changed me, he grew me, and he deepened my love for him in more ways than I could possibly tell you. On top of what he did in me, I also saw him at work in countless other situations and countless other peoples. It was just two years, but it was two years that completely changed my life. So you can imagine how at a loss I felt when people would come up to me when I got home and they would casually just make conversation and ask, 
Hey, so how was your time over there? How do I sum up two life-transforming years in just a couple minutes? It was, there was a little bit of panic every time that question got asked. It's like, oh, yeah, how was your time? I thought that was very challenging until this morning. Because now I'm going to attempt to sum up not just two important years in my life, but the first 20 or so generations of human and world history in Genesis 1 to 11. So no problem, right? Okay? So that's what we're going to do. We walked through Genesis 1 to 11, and what happened is we started at the very beginning when the God who already existed created everything else that now exists by the power of his word. He made a good world, and then he made mankind in his image and blessed us and gave us the noble calling to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, to work and keep his world. But when the serpent tempted us to seek our good apart from God and not trust his word, we sinned. And with our sin, the world came under a curse. Death and pain and sorrow took root. And we were banished from the good land of the garden. But there was a promise. A promise that though the offspring of that serpent would continue to wage war against the offspring of the woman, one day an offspring would come who would crush the serpent and undo the curse forever. Then with that promise still ringing in our ears, we saw mankind divide into two lines. A line of promise through Seth and a line of curse through Cain. And when Cain is cursed, we see yet again sin leading to removal from the land. Evil then continued to spread and work its way through the world until finally it got so bad that the Lord brought his judgment against the earth by sending a flood that destroyed every living thing, except for one man and his family. God showed grace to a man named Noah and spared his family in an ark of mercy and made a covenant to never destroy the earth by flood again. Sadly, though, when Noah and his family got off that ark, sin got off with them. And before you know it, that sin had led once again to mankind seeking our good apart from God in disobedience to his word. Rather than filling the earth, as we were told, people gathered and attempted to find their own security and provision apart from God and to make a name for themselves by building a tower at Babel. And again, we see God judging their sinful pride and compelling them to leave the land they were living in. All through these first 11 chapters, we've watched as God's judgment on sin leads to people having their homeland taken from them. While there were bright spots, the dominant note of chapters 1 through 11 was the outworking of the curse and its effects on the world. All through the first 11 chapters, we've been waiting and looking for an offspring who would undo the curse and restore blessing to the world. Which brings us to the story of Abraham and the second main section of Genesis, chapters 12 to 25. Our section, as I said, begins 
actually begins in 1127. You say, well, why there? Well, that's where we have our, our indicator. Do you remember this from the first part? It says, these are the generations of Terah. And that little phrase, these are the generations of, is like a chapter break in the book of Genesis. And so this begins the next chapter, if you will. And as we begin this new section, we come to a turning point in human history. And I don't use that phrase lightly. There's lots of things people say, that was a a defining moment, a turning point. Most of them are not. This is a real turning point in human history. Because moving forward, beginning with our passage this morning, we're going to notice a shift in emphasis from cursing to blessing. In fact, in our passage, there are five uses of the word bless. Now, commentators agree it's probably not a coincidence that there are five uses of the word curse in chapters 1 through 11. It's as though we're being told God's up to something. His plan to shift from curse to blessing is beginning to unfold. And we're going to notice a couple other changes as we start this section as well. First, the story both zooms in and slows down. Instead of focusing on all humanity the way we did in the first 11 chapters, we're going to zoom in on one man and his family. Narrow our focus significantly. And the first 11 chapters covered dozens of generations, while the next 14 chapters cover one generation. And as we walk through these chapters, there's going to be several threads I want you to keep in mind. First, we're still looking for an offspring. In fact, that's going to be one of the two main promises made to Abram today, that he's going to have many offspring. Second, instead of land being removed from people, instead of them being removed from the land in judgment, Abraham and his descendants will be given a land to go to. That's something different that's happening. And these two, land and offspring, are both promised today But one of the points of tension we're going to come back to over and over in this section is how often one or both of these promises is threatened. The promise of offspring or the promise of land. So keep that in mind as the story unfolds. Offspring and land. And the third main thread to keep your eyes on is faith. Faith. The life of Abraham is repeatedly held up in the New Testament as an example of faith. Romans 4 talks about the faith of Abraham. Galatians 3 calls Abraham the man of faith. So as we follow the life of Abraham, we want to keep our eyes peeled to see what can we learn about what faith really is and what does it look like lived out. That's what the New Testament keeps pointing us back to this man, Abraham, and saying that's what faith is. So keep your eyes peeled. What does faith look like? One last note before we get started. As many of you know, later in the story, Abram's name will be changed to Abraham. So, I'm going to do my best to say the right name and the right spot, but I'm asking that you not let it trip you up if I refer to him as Abraham before his name has been changed. I'm not, it's not intentional, but we all know who I'm talking about, and I just don't want that to be a source of concern or consternation to anyone out there. All right. So today... As we begin this series, looking at the faith of Abraham, we're going to start by looking at the call to walk by faith. And we'll see three things about this call. 
Go ahead and put the outline slide up if you got it. The call to walk by faith first comes to unlikely people. The call contains unblushing promises. And the call creates obedient pilgrims. So that's how we're breaking down the text. That's where we're going. So let's start by looking at who this call to walk by faith comes to. In verses 27 to 32, we meet this man, Abram, and his family. And there's two things we learn about this family in these verses that make them very unlikely people to receive God's call. The first thing that makes them unlikely is they are ungodly. These are not the most virtuous and dedicated followers of Yahweh out there. Instead, we learn that they live in Ur, which is, if you remember from our last series, the results of sin kept pushing people eastward away from Eden. Well, Ur is even further east from Eden than Babel, and it is a center of pagan worship. I mean, this was one of the places where false gods were dominant, mostly the moon and star gods. And we read this in Joshua 24. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. In other words, they didn't just live in a pagan culture. They were pagans. Like, they were not going to church on Sunday, leading a Sunday school class. They were worshiping false gods. It's, it's mind-boggling to me that, I don't have any way to prove this, but there's a very real chance that the God, or that the man who later stood under the stars and was promised that as many of those as there are, that's how many your offspring will be, he may have stood under those same stars and worshiped the moon. Think about that. I mean, this is incredible. When followers of Yahweh of the day looked around and thought, hmm, I wonder where God's means of blessing the world is going to come from. I wonder who it'll be. I bet they had lots of ideas. Oh, I bet it's, I bet it's maybe that family over there. They, they just are so dedicated and devoted. Or I bet it's going to come from this land. There's a lot of worship of Yahweh there. Nobody would have guessed that it, he would be in Ur, most likely worshiping the moon god. Abram was least likely to be voted patriarch of God's people. And what we see is that Abram had done absolutely nothing to catch God's eye. He'd done nothing to earn God's favor. He didn't come from the right family, the right background. He wasn't raised in church. He wasn't walking by faith. Instead, he was walking in his sins. What Paul would later say to us in Ephesians 2, very well could have been written to Abram back then, saying, you were dead, Abram, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That was Abram, an ungodly and unlikely candidate to receive God's call to walk by faith. But that's not the only thing that made this 
group of people unlikely. We also in these verses meet Abram's wife, Sarai. And you uncharacteristically learn only one thing about her. Notice you don't yet hear anything about her family connections because the narrator is keeping that. That's going to be revealed later as part of the story when we come to find out how she's actually connected to Abram. Nothing is said about her family here. The only thing we know about Sarai, she's barren. She has no child, it says, and she's unable to have children. So God is going to promise to make Abram the father of a multitude of offspring, more numerous than the stars, and to build this massive family, a family so large that it will be a nation. God chooses a woman who can't bear children. He picks a person who cannot do what is necessary to receive this blessing. God doesn't just choose someone who's unlikely. He picks someone who is completely unable and nothing she can do could change that. So right off the bat, if, if you're reading this for the first time, you're wondering, why would God do that? Why would he choose the ungodly and unable? Well, the Bible tells us over and over again, it's because he wants to show that his election His choosing is based not on how good people are or what they have to offer. Instead, he chooses the sinful and the weak, the ungodly and the unable, so that it's plain that all the credit, all the power, all the glory belongs to him. All of it is to the praise of his glorious grace. And friends, I don't know if you're tracking, but this is really good news for people like you and me. Because God's call to walk by faith always has and always will come to the ungodly and unable. Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And while we were still weak and unable, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's who God calls, the ungodly and the unable. It was true for Abram. And it's still true for us today. First Corinthians tells Christians like us, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. To bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Friends, this very morning, God's still up to this. He's still calling foolish, weak, low, despised people to trust him and walk by faith. Might you be one of them? That brings us to our second and central portion of our passage. We just saw that the call to walk by faith comes to unlikely people. And now in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, we see that this call contains unblushing promises. Look at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. 
And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here, the history of salvation begins the same way the history of creation did, with God speaking. His word is what launches the unfolding plan of redemption. And when God speaks, he gives Abram two calls or two commands. The first is simple. Go. That's his command. Go. Because God doesn't want Abram to have a faith that is just a new thought in his mind. Or just a new love in his heart. He immediately calls Abram to act in faith. He calls him to both go from some things and to something else. He calls him to go from his country, from his people, and from his immediate family. And in the original, is actually the word from is repeated there for emphasis. They don't put it in the English. I don't know why. But it's meant to say from this, from this, from this. In other words, God's calling Abram to leave behind all that would have given him a sense of security and pride and identity and comfort, he's called to leave behind his old life. And from that old life, he calls Abram to go to a land that God would show him. But notice what God does here. He calls Abram to trust him and not just his plan. This is a distinction I think is really important. He doesn't tell Abram where he's going He doesn't tell Abram how long it would take. He doesn't tell Abram how hard it would be. He doesn't tell him which path. He doesn't tell him who would be involved or what the highlights would be. He doesn't doesn't tell him anything. All he tells him is, I will show it to you. And as I wrestled with this, I don't know if you can relate, but I found in my own heart that far too often, I can be guilty of wanting to trust God's plan and not God's person. See, if God would just show me what's up ahead, if he would just tell me how the journey will look, then I can evaluate his plan and decide if that makes sense to me, and then maybe I'll trust it. Right? I mean, that sounds good. Like, I'm trusting the Lord because I see how he's going to do this, and then this, and then this. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm going to trust it. But the problem then is that I'm not trusting God I'm trusting my ability to evaluate whether I think God's plan is good. But the call to walk by faith is a call to trust God himself, even when we don't know where he's leading. To paraphrase Calvin, he said, it's better for us to be blindfolded and have God lead us by the hand than to have both eyes open and rely on our own ability." Or as an old hymn that you've heard me quote many times, I may not know the way I go, but oh, I know my guide. That's what God is calling Abram to here. That's how he calls him. He simply says, go, start walking, and I'll show you where to go. God is calling Abram to leave all he once held dear and follow him into an unknown future. 
He's calling Abram to trust in him and in him alone as he journeys. But notice that God doesn't just give Abram a call. He attaches promises to it. And I'm calling them unblushing promises. And if you're wondering where that's coming from, I'm getting that language from the famous C.S. Lewis quote. If you have that ready, go ahead and throw that one up there. Lewis wrote in his essay, The Weight of Glory, he says, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And just like Lewis is saying in regards to our own calling here, God is not calling Abram in these verses to settle for less or to lower his sights. When he calls him to go from all that, he's not saying, yeah, it's going to be hard, but it's the right thing to do, Abram. Do this out of duty. Say no to everything that would bring you pleasure and joy and just say yes to what you ought to do. No, when God calls Abram to follow him by faith, look at the three incredible promises he makes. I will make you a great nation. Abram, I will bless you. Abram, I will make your name great. In other words, God is motivating Abram here. He doesn't just say go. He says, if you go, listen to what's going to happen. And what he's saying is that all that mankind tried to do for themselves back in chapter 11 at Babel, to have their own land, to build a great nation, to make a great name for themselves, God says he's going to do it for Abram as a gift of grace. And all that he promises, these are not puny promises. He's not motivating him with, and I promise that next Tuesday will be a good day. He's promising one man, a man with a barren wife, that he's going to make him, not just, he's not just going to give him grandkids. He's going to make him into a great nation. And all that entails, a nation as it's used here would imply Lots of people, language, government. So he's not just telling like a group of folks. He's not just saying, hey, Indianapolis, one day I'll make you a nation. It'd be like he's saying, Dan Weller, you are going to have a seat at the UN Security Council. Your family. Like that's crazy. And that's what Abram has here. Not only that, he's going to pour out his blessing on him. The God who's, who we've seen his blessing in the first 11 chapters and not only that, this nobody from Ur, nobody knew who Abram was at this time. But one day, this nobody from Ur will have a name that is known the world over for centuries. Do you know how many people know the name of Abram or Abraham in our world today? Then at the end of verse 2, God adds a second part of the call. And it's a little tricky because it's phrased as both a call and a promise. He tells Abram, you will be a blessing. And so it's intentionally ambiguous because it's both. God is both promising him that that will happen. You will be a blessing, Abram. 
and he's calling him to do it. He's saying this was part of God's purpose in blessing Abram so that he will be a blessing to others. What God is trying to make clear to Abram here is that when it comes to blessing, Abram and his family are called to be a pipe and not a pond. Both of those, a pipe and a pond, have water in them. But a pipe is meant for water to flow through. While a pond simply accumulates water and it doesn't go anywhere. It can rain and rain and rain. You can fill it and it just stays there. Abram and those who share his faith are called to be pipes of blessing to those around them and not simply hoarding blessing in their own little ponds. Then God attaches three more promises to his call. Do you see the structure here? Call, three promises. Call, three promises. So the three promises he adds are, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse him who dishonors you, and in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. In other words, he's saying there's going to be a great dividing line in humanity. And which side people were on will come down to how they respond to Abram and his offspring. Those who bless him will be blessed, and those who dishonor him will be cursed. God also promises that in Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Again, we say it, it rolls off your tongue as though it's no big deal, but if I told you that in you, every family in the earth will be blessed. Not just that you'll be a, a source of a lot of blessings. A lot of people will say, oh wow, they were really kind and good and they helped me. Every family of the earth will be blessed through you. Abraham, Abram is told here that he would become the instrument of worldwide blessing. Remember in the first 11 chapters, the earth had fallen under a worldwide curse. But now, God announces that his solution to the curse and a restoration of blessing would come through Abram. And at the center of this blessing are those two main promises, offspring and land. There would be a way back to God's good design of God's happy people, your offspring, in God's glorious place, your land, under God's kind rule. And all of it would come through this man, Abram, and his offspring. But in order to obtain those blessings, Abram would need to trust God and walk by faith. So I hope as we're hearing about Abram, I hope you're seeing how God's call to us is in many ways not that different from Abram's. Jesus calls us still today with an equally radical call to leave everything to follow him. He tells us, whoever loves father or mother or sister or brother or children more than me is not worthy of me. Take up your cross and follow me. Whoever loses his life will find it whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. Jesus calls us with the same call. It's a call to turn away from our old lives of walking in sin and instead walk by faith in him. And just like Abram's call, the call of God in the gospel comes to unlikely people. And it contains unblushing promises of reward. Promises of eternal life. Promises of having all our sins forgiven. God promises to be 100% for us. To never turn away from doing good to us. That nothing will separate us from his love. 
He promises full joy and pleasures forever. He promises peace that defies understanding. He promises to make us his very own children and to give us an everlasting home with him, a home where no chilling wind or poisonous breath can reach that healthful shore, where sickness and sorrow, pain and death are felt and feared no more. Friends, do you know how staggering the promises of the gospel are? God's call to leave everything to trust in him alone is not asking you to dial down your desires. As Lewis said, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are far too easily pleased. In the gospel, God makes unblushing promises to show us how much better he and his blessings are than anything this world can offer us. So how can they be ours? How can this blessing be ours? Only through Abram's offspring, Jesus. In Jesus, all the promises of God find their yes and amen. Jesus, like Abram, left his home and his father's house to come to the land that God had shown him. He came to this world full of ungodly sinners, unable to save ourselves, and he saved us from our sin by taking it on himself. He bore the wrath of God in our place. Jesus undid the curse by becoming a curse for us so that we could be blessed. Listen to how Paul says it in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Friends, the promise of God to Abram is fulfilled in Jesus. And through faith in Jesus, it becomes ours. God makes Jesus into a great nation. He gives us every blessing in him. And he has given him the greatest name, the name above all names, the only name given under heaven by which men must be saved. He is the one on whom people's destinies hinge. Those who bless him are blessed and those who dishonor him are cursed. Jesus is the one in whom all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And just like with Abram, the call to walk by faith always demands a response. Faith is not merely knowing the promises of God, but acting on them. Faith doesn't sit still. Faith walks. And that brings us to our last point. In verses 4 to 9, we see that the call to walk by faith creates obedient pilgrims. Look at verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Stop there. What had God called Abram to do in verse 1? go. So what did Abram do? Verse 4, he went. Now what would cause Abram to do this? Why would he leave all that he knew, all that he was familiar with, all his sources of comfort, provision, security, and venture out into the unknown? Faith. Because there was something about these promises that was so desirable and something about this promise maker that was so trustworthy that Abram put 
all his trust in God alone. His faith led him to obey. Hebrews 11 says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Friends, that's what faith does. Faith obeys. A faith that doesn't obey is not real faith. How do we know? How do we know whether faith is real in ourselves and someone else? Faith always leads to obedience. We're going to see this over and over in this series. Because the Bible never talks about faith apart from obedience. And it never talks about obedience apart from faith. And what we see is that when Abraham obeyed by faith, his obedience meant launching out on a new life as a pilgrim. He began a journey that lasted him the rest of his life. Once he obeyed the call to walk by faith, he was never fully at home again in this world. He was merely passing through. Look down at all the verbs in verses 4 to 9 that describe the actions of Abram. He went, he departed, he set out, he passed through, he moved. There's motion, there's action, there's going. Now think about all the language scripture uses to describe a life of faith. Walking with God. Following God. A race. We are sojourners. We are exiles. The point is that faith is always active and always alien. We are pilgrims looking for a homeland. And as Abram ventured through the land, notice two things. First, we see two massive obstacles to the fulfillment of God's promises. In verse 4, we read that Abram's already 75 years old. So not only is Sarah barren, but Abram's no young man himself. Could God really bring offspring through him? Then down in verse 6, we see that this wonderful land that God brought him to, it says the Canaanites were in the land. I mean, it's like showing up and somebody says, here's your dream home. You walk in and you open the front door and there's a family living there. And they don't look very nice. That's what Abram, like there's people in the land that God promised him. What's God going to do about that? The second thing to notice in these verses is how Abram's walk of faith is marked by worship. As this pilgrim makes his way through life, he worships everywhere he goes. He builds altars and calls on the name of the Lord. And don't miss this. This was really helpful for me. As Abram journeys along, there's a contrast. He pitches his tent. In other words, his temporary dwelling. But he builds altars. Permanent structures. So that when Abram is long gone, there will be no great cities or towers to witness to Abram's fame. Instead, all this man leaves behind are altars of worship. The lasting imprint Abram leaves on this world are pointers to the greatness and goodness of his God. That's his legacy. Don't you want that to be your legacy? When we're gone, don't you want to not have monuments to your greatness, but altars of worship? Abram, the obedient pilgrim, ventured through this life by faith. 
When God called him to walk by faith, he set out on his lifelong journey. And though he traveled long and far, he never reached his destination in this world. Hebrews 11 tells us he died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Friends, that is the desire of all who walk by faith. We desire a better country. And as obedient pilgrims, we're seeking a homeland. While we're here, we walk by faith as strangers and exiles, never fully at home, but always looking to the promise. And when we finally get there, I think C.S. Lewis once again captures perfectly what our hearts will say. At the end of the last Narnia book, when Narnia is made new, somewhat as a picture of the new earth, one of the characters sums up what I think every obedient pilgrim's heart will say when we arrive in the promised land. This character cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Come further up, come further in. Like Abram, our call is to seek God's promised homeland. God's call comes to unlikely people, it contains unblushing promises, and it creates obedient pilgrims. And verse 9 ends our passage by saying, Abram journeyed on. He was still going. And friends, that's our call too. To journey on. To walk by faith and not by sight. Till we come home at last to our real country. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the unblushing promises we have in the gospel. Thank you that our Savior has said that he's gone to prepare a place for us. And if he's preparing a place for us, will he not also come back and take us to be with him? God, thank you that you have prepared for your people a city. And that it pleases you that we live as pilgrims longing for and looking for our real home. So God, would we live lives that are more detached to the things of this world and with affections that are set more fully on the things to come? Would we be better followers of you here and now by looking to what's to come? So God, would you stir us up to follow the example we have in our forefather Abraham? Would we be willing to leave it all to follow you into the unknown, banking everything purely on who you are and knowing that your promises are trustworthy and true. Help us to do this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.